Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have promised that the word that goes out from your mouth will not return to you empty, but will accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it. And so we pray now that you would accomplish the good purposes in the hearts of your people through the preaching of your word this morning, for we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please open now your Bibles to our sermon text, Colossians chapter 1. Be looking at verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. You'll find this on page 983 of the Pew Bibles. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2. Verse 5, here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So far in our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, we've seen how Paul opened the letter praying for the Colossians, giving thanks for their faith and praying that they would grow in their faith, that they would grow spiritually. From there, he transitioned to exalt the all-supremacy of Jesus Christ. And then he applied Christ to the Colossians, showing them how Christ had reconciled them to God. But in all this, he said very little about himself except for the fact that he prays for them, praying for them without ceasing. Well, this morning, there is a transition as Paul does begin to write about himself and his ministry. He does this not out of pride, not out of self-obsession, but because he wants to ground the church, not only in the gospel which he proclaims, but also in the manner of faithful ministry, the, the faithful gospel ministry which he practices. And this ministry, he will make clear, it's not something he has chosen. 
but it's a stewardship entrusted to him by God. And so Paul sets forth himself and his gospel ministry as an example which must be followed. This example will, of course, stand out in stark contrast to the false teachers which are seeking to lead them astray. Now, as we look on today, living as we do some 2,000 years later, Paul's ministry still stands as the baseline example for us to follow in Christ's church. From his example, we can extract basic principles of what faithful gospel ministry looks like. And so this passage, it has special application to pastors, to elders, to those who serve in positions of ministry. That doesn't mean if you're not a pastor or an elder, you just get to check out this morning. Remember that Paul wrote this, he wrote this to the whole church. And he was saying, this is the ministry that is for you. This is what I, Paul, am doing for you. So follow me, follow those who are like me. And follow no one else. As we see the struggling, the suffering of Paul, you'll see why you will need to be praying faithfully for those who are serving you in ministry. So look at our text in three parts this morning. First, the manner of this faithful ministry. Second, the principal task of ministry. And third, the goal of ministry. So we'll begin first with the manner of ministry which is to suffer and to struggle for Christ's church. Paul opens the passage with an extremely striking statement in verse 24. He writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I say this is striking because, at least on a first read, this idea that something is lacking in Christ's afflictions, it ought to immediately set off alarm bells in your head. Is Paul saying that there is something lacking in Christ? That his death on the cross is insufficient? That something more is needed for your salvation? Of course, if you take a moment to consider it, you realize this can't possibly be what Paul means here. We just saw in verses 15 to 20 all about Christ's absolute supremacy, not only in creation, but in redemption, the new creation. And here in chapter 1, not to mention everything else Paul has written, just even here in Colossians chapter 1, Paul has already made, made it absolutely clear that through Christ's death, you are reconciled to God. In him you have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and his work is complete. And in fact, the overall point, the main point of this entire letter is that nothing needs to be added to Christ's saving work. In fact, that's the whole problem with these false teachers. They want to add all kinds of things which undermines Christ and his work. While Paul is saying that Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient, and so you don't need anything else. So clearly, clearly, Paul cannot be saying that there's anything lacking in Christ's once for all, completely finished, completely sufficient sacrifice for you on the cross. So then, what is he saying? He's speaking here about the suffering of Christ's body, the church, which we are so identified 
as Christ's own through the deep spiritual union that Christ has with his body. And here, to understand this, it's helpful to remember Paul's own conversion. When Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, and Paul asked, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuted. Now, you know, Jesus was ascended on high. But what was going on? Paul was persecuting the church. He was persecuting believers. And yet Jesus says, you are persecuting me. These are my afflictions as you persecute my people, the church. Not only does Christ identify with the sufferings of his people, but as he calls his church to advance in its mission to make disciples of all nations, he calls the church, he calls his people to suffer. And those are He says, my sufferings. And so later in that same chapter, Christ says to Ananias about Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name, Acts 9, 15 and 16. And so Paul, as a minister of Christ, he too will suffer With Christ, he will share in Christ's afflictions as he does the work of ministry. And though this is real, deep suffering, and if you read the rest of Paul's letters, you see how greatly he suffered. What does he say? He's not despairing, he's not losing heart. No, he says, I am rejoicing in it. How can he say that? Partly, he says, it's because he's not alone in it. As he writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 5, and 6, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Christ is the one who strengthens and comforts Paul in his suffering. And as we saw earlier in our reading from 2 Corinthians 4, Paul could say, he could call it this light momentary affliction. It's preparing for us an eternal way to glory beyond all comparison. So not only does Paul not lose heart, he positively rejoices in it. As he says in Philippians 3, he gladly loses all things in which he used to put his trust. He trades them all to gain Christ, even though that means sharing in his sufferings. So we see here that Paul suffers as a minister as he labors for the church. And this, of course, certainly applies to ministers today, and yet, does this not apply more widely to all believers? We are all citizens of heaven, strangers and exiles here on the earth, and we are all called to follow in the footsteps of a suffering Savior. All believers will suffer in this life. But as you share in Christ's sufferings, this will only serve to bring you closer to Christ. As you share in fellowship with him, this will only bring you closer to glory. Now we know this is true. We also know it doesn't always feel like it in the moment. When you're in the thick of it, when you're suffering, rejoicing doesn't come naturally. So how could Paul genuinely say that he was rejoicing in his sufferings? Christ was with him in it. When you suffer, the worst part about it is that suffering 
it tends to make everything seem senseless, meaningless. But I think another key for Paul was that he had a rock-solid grasp, not just of his purpose in life, but specifically the purpose for his suffering. It was not senseless, but rather he was suffering with Christ and he was suffering for Christ and for the church. Paul knew why he was suffering. And that meant he could not only bear it, but even rejoice in it. You need to have that same sense that you are suffering with a purpose if you are to rejoice in your sufferings. So this is the first aspect of the manner of ministry, how ministry is going to be experienced, to suffer. The second, the manner of, of ministry is also to labor and to struggle. And here I want to skip forward to verse 29 and also the first verse of chapter 2 as Paul writes, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. In these verses, Paul describes his ministry using two key terms. He first calls it toil or labor, hard, wearisome work. And second, it's described as a struggle. It's a a conflict in which he is striving with all his effort. Since at this time he's in prison far away from the Colossians, his struggle for them must primarily be one of prayer. And yet, how he struggles even in prayer. Yes, he's able to send them this letter, but primarily it's his faithful daily prayers for them in which he is fighting a spiritual battle on their behalf, pouring out his heart. All we see here, Paul, is profound sense that he is laboring, that he is toiling, that he is struggling with all that is in him. At the same time, he also says, this is not my own doing. It is God powerfully working within him and through him. Remember how he prayed for the Colossians in verse 11, that they would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. Here is God's energy that is powerfully working within Paul. So anything that Paul accomplishes, it is because of the Lord. All the glory goes to him. He puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And that ought to be our attitude as well as we serve the Lord, serving with all that is in us, because we know that the Lord is the one who gives us strength. So the first principle of ministry we see in this passage is this manner of ministry. Ministry is suffering and struggling for Christ's church. And second, we see the primary task of ministry to make the word of God fully known. Picking up at the end of verse 24, we read, The church of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. Here in this verse, Paul makes clear that ministry is not something he has taken on by himself. Rather, God gave it to him as a stewardship. 
First here, we should remember even this term ministry, what is the essence of it? It means to be a servant, to minister is to serve. And then he uses this other term, steward, a stewardship. A steward is a servant who has been appointed to manage the affairs of a household for the master. And so here Paul is appointed a steward in the church, the household of God. He's a servant twice over. Paul is saying that he does this only because he has been called by God and entrusted with this task. He's not taken on this authority for himself, but he's been given it by the Lord. And we know this from his conversion, which is also when he was called and appointed to this task. Now, this contrasts with the self-appointed false teachers who were seeking to lead the Colossians astray. Then in verse 25, he also highlights his chief task as a steward, to make the word of God fully known. And in verse 26, he tells us what this word is. He says, it is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now this term mystery, it's going to be a key concept for Paul. He uses it three times in our passage in verse 26, verse 27, chapter 2, verse 2. And we need to consider carefully what he's saying because he uses mystery a little differently from how we usually use the term today. We tend to think of mystery in terms of a mystery novel, a secret or a puzzle that's unknown, but perhaps a clever person can work out by following the clues. But that's not how Paul uses the term. As we see in verse 26, a New Testament mystery, as Paul uses it, is something that was previously hidden and unknown, but now has been revealed by God. It previously was a secret, but now it is open, now it is available, now it is known. And here in verse 26, Paul says it's revealed to the saints, but in the parallel passage in Ephesians 3.3, Paul says it is for everyone. In Romans 16.26, it is made known to all the nations. Now this stands in stark contrast to how this term was often used in Paul's own day. Now, just as we have secret societies today, so in Paul's day, there were several religions, cults. They were known as the mystery religions. And they closely guarded their secrets, their mysteries. You had to go through their initiation rituals, be admitted to the inside before you could gain access to their secret knowledge, their mysteries. And so gain access to their, the true power they had to offer. Supposedly true power, of course. Now we don't know for sure, but it's likely that the false teachers were offering the Colossians inside access to secret knowledge, but only for the select few. But what is Paul's counter message? He is saying, Here is God's word, the gospel, and yes, it is a mystery. It was hidden and secret, but now it is made known. Now it is openly proclaimed. And in verse 27, Paul finally tells us, what is this mystery? What is it? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now Christ, of course, he was foretold, he was prefigured, he was foreshadowed all throughout the Old Testament. But it is not until he actually comes that he is revealed in all his fullness and glory. The Old Testament also foretells how the Gentiles would in some way be brought in. But no one quite fully understood it. The fullness of their inclusion, not as second-class citizens, but as full children of Abraham in Christ. 
And so that is what Paul is highlighting here as he's writing primarily to this Gentile church, speaking of the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, Christ in you. Now Paul almost always speaks of how believers are in Christ. But here, surprisingly, he reverses the language. And he says, Christ in you. In one sense, it's referring to the same thing, the same spiritual union with Christ. But isn't there something powerful about putting it this way? The result of this union with Christ is that you have a certain hope of glory to come. It's perhaps put most clearly a little later in this letter in chapter 3, verse 4, where he writes, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This future glory is not only that we will receive glorious, perfect resurrection bodies, but also means our eternal dwelling with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the mystery that Paul proclaims. Yeah, that's only part one. Because in chapter two, he continues to describe this mystery. Where he writes, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now traditionally, God's people would look to the scriptures. That's where you go to get wisdom and knowledge. And of course, the scriptures, they point to God. They are inspired by the all-wise, all-knowing God. So that's where you go if you want wisdom and knowledge. As we've seen in previous weeks, studying this letter through Colossians, Christ is the eternal, divine image of God. Christ is also the Word of God who created all things, but who has taken on flesh, who has come down for our salvation. And as the eternal Word... He is the one who inspired the prophets. He is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. And all those Old Testament scriptures, they were pointing forward to him. They have now been fulfilled in him. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's worth noting that here in this verse where it says the treasures hidden in Christ, it doesn't mean that this knowledge and wisdom, it's inaccessible, that you have to somehow search hard in Christ, but simply that it is stored in Christ. And so if you would be wise, you must seek after, you must know Christ, and in knowing him, you will gain all the riches of wisdom and knowledge that are found in Christ alone. And so Calvin writes, we are perfect in wisdom if we truly know Christ, so that it is madness to wish to know anything besides him. And so what a glorious gospel mystery it is that Paul proclaims, that every minister of Jesus Christ is called to proclaim, Christ in you, the hope of glory, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that is the primary task to proclaim this good news. Then the goal of ministry, our third point this morning, to bring God's people to maturity in Christ. Verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
Now this verse opens by restating that primary task to proclaim Christ. But notice here that Paul uses the first person plural, him we proclaim. So here he's including his fellow workers like Timothy and Epaphras. He doesn't do this work alone. He'll move back to the first person singular in the next verse, focusing again on his own ministry. But here he broadens out the scope as he wants to give the bigger picture. And what particularly stands out in this verse is the universality with which Paul writes. Three times he spells out the the two-word phrase in Greek. It's translated everyone here, but in Greek it might be more literally translated every man. Warning every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man mature in Christ. And this is a theme Paul's been hitting on all throughout this chapter. Verse 6, that the gospel is bearing fruit and multiplying throughout the whole world. Verse 23, that it's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And verse 20, that God in Christ is reconciling to himself all things in all of creation. And so, you get this sense of the universality of the gospel. The scope of Paul's ministry and, and with him, all those that God is calling to ministry, it's not limited to one city or one region, but his goal is to reach every person possible to minister to them with the gospel. And we see here that a, a minister does not seek just to convert people and leave them as spiritual infants, but to disciple them up to the point of maturity so that they might be like Christ, their Savior. How does he do that? He says, warning and teaching with all wisdom. Just as in verse 9, Paul prayed for the Colossians that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And in this way, through his work, even through this own letter, it may be one of the ways that his own prayers will be answered. And Paul, you see, there's, there's two aspects to this work. First, he warns, or it could be translated, he admonishes against danger. And there are all sorts of dangers that we believers need to be warned against, lest we stray, lest we fall into danger. We'll see that Paul warns most of all against false teaching in this letter, but other times he warns against sin, immorality, against foolishness, against spiritual laziness. We'll see him in action in chapter 2, verse 4, where he writes, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Here he notes that false teaching, it's going to sound good on the surface. That's why the Colossians need to be deeply rooted in Christ. They need all the wisdom and the understanding that are hidden in him so that these persuasive arguments don't lead them astray. Now, this is just the first of many warnings that are to come in this letter. And Paul is very careful to make sure it comes in a context that is rich in encouragement. Right after Paul has spoken of his struggle for them. And then immediately he follows it with another encouragement in verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So even as Paul is, is warning the Colossians against false teaching, he is also encouraging them that he sees the firm foundation of their faith and it makes him confident that they will stand strong. And so, one aspect is the warning. The second component to this work of bringing believers to maturity is teaching. 
In contrast to warning, teaching is the more positive activity of instructing believers in all that God has revealed about who he is, what he has done, and what he requires of us, how we are to respond, how we might live for him. Although teaching and warning are tasks that ministers must do, later in this letter, Paul will encourage the whole body of believers to participate in both aspects of this work. As he writes in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so you see, this is a natural response as each of you receives this ministry, as you grow in the knowledge of the Lord, as, you, as that word of Christ dwells in you, you naturally begin to teach and admonish one another. You begin to teach and warn your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now the end goal of this gospel ministry is to present every person mature in Christ. And this lines up with what we saw last time, how Christ himself will present each believer holy, blameless, and above reproach on the final day. But until that day, Christ prepares his people, working for their sanctification through his gospel ministers, through the ministry of the word. As I conclude this morning, I want you apply this passage in very simply in two different directions. First, as you hear this calling and these principles that are, in one sense, for the ministers of how they are to uh, serve, I ask you to pray for your pastors. A ministry is a high calling and a wonderful privilege, and yet, who is sufficient for these things? Of course, we are all called to suffer as we follow a suffering Savior. We are all called to struggle, to toil, to work hard in the service of the Lord, but there is a grave responsibility that comes with being called to be a steward in God's house. So pray for us. Pray that the Lord would continue also to raise up faithful ministers. And second, also consider those who are called to receive the proclaimed word? Are you faithfully receiving the ministry of the word? Are you listening to the teaching? Are you heeding the warnings? Are you growing in maturity, becoming more and more like your Savior? Do not look into the word that is proclaimed to you and then look away and forget it, but apply it to your lives and pray that the Lord will be working it deep in you. If so, then you know the riches of this glorious mystery, which is Christ in you, and you are rejoicing in the hope of glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a wonderful God we serve. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and we praise you for the way that you have unfurled your plan throughout history with Christ revealed in your perfect timing so that all the nations might be welcomed in. We pray, Lord, that you would be at work in us, encouraging our hearts, rooting and anchoring us in Christ, knitting us together in love, growing us in maturity, making us more and more like Christ, that in all things we might serve you and bring you glory. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.